done with this silly boot thing. Glory to Jesus. So I may or may not use the stool. It depends if I think about my wife telling me I should be using the stool. But I'm not going to think about that. It's good to see you. Hey, welcome. If this is the first time or the first time in a long time, welcome home. I love saying that. I love that that's the messaging in our church in a lot of ways, don't you? You walk into our mezzanine and you see the big wall up there and it just says, welcome home. I love that. Because to me, that's the message I feel like God wants us to receive. Not only when we walk in here, but when we walk into his church. Because I feel like his church, the big C, the church global, is that he wants to welcome us home. Amen? Great to have you. So who comes to an 8 o'clock service on an Easter Sunday? You know who does? People who got to get stuff done. Come on, that's who shows up early, right? I got stuff to do, preacher. Get it going. (laughs) I love it, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm super glad you're here. I know that God has a word for you. I know it does. He's been speaking to me. I always think it's interesting. People come to an Easter service and oftentimes, Easter is one of those times when people allow themselves to kind of revisit their life. In other words, I feel like this is a lot of times when people can allow themselves to be introspective enough to, to maybe consider a life change. I don't know what it is. Sometimes Easter Sunday is those moments where you think like it's the beginning, it's a new thing. And, and I'll level with you in a lot of ways. It's kind of confusing when it comes to the Bible because we don't really... Uh, We don't really talk a lot about the resurrection or what Jesus coming back to life or the tomb being empty, except on Easter Sunday. We don't really understand the value and the importance of what this whole thing, maybe even the significance of this particular morning. I'm so glad you came today because I really believe that there's something special that God wants every one of us to see. Easter to me uh, really is a message of hope. It's a message of hope, especially in a world of despair and craziness and weird tweets and crazy Instagrams and all the stuff that goes on, right? I mean, don't we just need like a message that says that there's something worth hoping for? Because I feel like the world we live in today is like there's always this shroud of, uh, there's this one newscaster that my wife and I watch, and, and she's a funny one. She's like Debbie Downer every time she's on. Like, there'll be like, you know, um, homeless people were fed today with so much food will will be like the headline. And she'll go, but you know, not everyone was fed. And I always think like, why are you so down, man? Like, there's this this moment where she's just so hard to listen to. (laughs) I love the message of Easter because literally it means that that, that hope prevails over despair. That there's something about it. I I always always picture, uh, remember when we were kids, how... We, we, uh, you would have to have the proof of purchase was the box top of the cereal thing. You could bring that to school or wherever it was, and it was the proof of purchase. I always think that the, the, the empty tomb was really like the box top. It was like the proof of purchase. Jesus dying on the cross was magnificent, but dying on the cross, paying for our sin was important. But the most important thing was the fact that he rose from the dead to say, look, I did it. I beat hell and death and all that was trying to keep me down. That's the beauty in this message. I love the Easter message because it gives me something to live for. You know, in this world that's crazy and chaotic and a big mess, 
you wonder sometimes, how come God doesn't just do something just to snap his fingers and make it all just get better? Why didn't he just like make it all just stop hurting and, and all start feeling right? You almost want to just raise your fist at heaven and say, God, fix this thing, would you? You know, and, and the truth is, he really did do something, right? He sent his son. But listen to what it says in 1 John. I'm not sure if I put this scripture up there or not, but 1 John 4, 9. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Listen to verse 10. This is real love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. And every one of us needs hope, don't we? I mean, I don't care how great your life is going. Every one of us needs hope. We need hope to get through the dark nights because we all have those. We need hope to get us out of bed at times when it seems too cold. We need hope when it, and it feels like our bank accounts are full but our hearts are empty. I don't know where you stand or maybe, you're, maybe your hearts are full and your bank account's empty. I don't know, but you still feel like I need some hope. Something beyond just the ability to get through another day. That's the message of Easter, that hope prevails over despair. I want to talk to you this morning about a few people who who experienced or perhaps encountered the most hopeless, I don't know, night of their life. And yet they found what I believe was the most hopeful thing ever, ever given. So will you join me as we pray? God, thanks for your greatness. Thank you for the tomb being empty. Thank you for Easter Sunday. God, I just want to say thank you for all that you are. You're amazing. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of John, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of John. Turn them on, flip them over, flip it on, wherever you got. The book of John, it's interesting. This is uh, So Jesus spent three years or so on the planet 33 years, really, but really the last three years of his life he spent uh, in, in teaching, in feeding, in leading, in discipling, in healing, in bringing back to life. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, this is Jesus. I want to give a little context to this moment. Jesus literally takes this group of disciples, these 12 people who followed him, plus numbers of others, but there were at least 12 that hung out with him. And at this particular moment in time, it's the last part uh, chapters 15 through 20 of, of Jesus's last moments on earth. The context is that Jesus has spent all this time building relationship, giving them hope, telling them things like, I am the Messiah, t- telling him things like, I am the hope of, of your future, telling him all this stuff. And imagine what went through their minds. This is all they knew of Jesus. Now keep in mind, we have retrospect. We have the ability to look back and say, oh, well, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. These people in the end of the book of John didn't have that perspective. Even though Jesus told them, hey guys, listen, I am going to come back. I promise you I'm going to raise from the dead. He told them that, but they couldn't hear it. And you think to yourself, like, how could you not hear that? <laughs> Any more than we can hear God say, I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. Just trust me. And all of us are going like, yeah, but. See, I think the disciples were the same way. They heard the messaging of Jesus being the answer, the savior, the provider, the healer. They got to see some of his miracles, no different than perhaps some of us. When you look into the eyes of a beautiful grandchild or your baby or your, the sunset or the whatever it is you got and you see God's hand show up, they got to see those kinds of things. 
But imagine this group of people, this eclectic group of some who had resource, some who had education, some who had none of that, some who were blue-collar, hard-hat-wearing fishermen. These are some of these people all showed up. These were all the people who followed Jesus. Could you imagine they had this hope for three years of the, I'm going to be the one who's going to fix this big mess. And then all of a sudden, one day, bam, Jesus is arrested. He's taken away, given a farce of a trial, and then killed. What must it have been like for those disciples? What must it have been like for those followers who were close to him? What must have gone through their minds when they, they had hoped that he would be the, the answer, the, uh, the, the, the one who would ride in on the great white horse and overthrow the Roman government? What must have it been like for them when their, their hope was arrested, beaten, and then killed? Hmm. John 13 says this. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He now showed his disciples the fullest extent of his love. It was time for supper. The devil had already enticed Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to carry out his plan and betray Jesus. This was the night of the Last Supper. It's amazing to me. It says that Jesus showed his disciples the greatest extent of his love. To me, this is amazing because this is that moment where, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Jesus tells them, I, you must eat my body and drink my blood. And he tells them all this stuff at that Last Supper moment. He also said during that time that one of you would betray me. During that moment, before they experienced this great hopelessness, Jesus is telling them in this Last Supper moment, hey, there's, this is the last time I'm going to be with you. Over in chapter 18, it says this in verse 1. This is after the Last Supper. Jesus takes his disciples over to the, what's called the Mount of Olives, the Olive Grove. And it says, after saying these things, chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had gone there many times with his disciples. The leading priests, the Pharisees, had given Judas a battalion of Roman soldiers and the temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Verse 4, Jesus fully realized what was going to happen to him. Stepping forward to meet them, he asked, whom are you looking for? Pause. I love this. This is the Last Supper happens. Jesus takes his disciples to this olive grove where all these trees are. And the Bible says that there's this battalion or this, this group of Roman soldiers. You can imagine, right? They're wearing their helmets. They got their shields, their swords. And they're, they're approaching this defenseless Jesus, right? They're literally going to betray. Judas is about to betray him by kissing him on the cheek and literally selling him out to the Roman government. This is all going on. I think this is amazing to me. I love it what it says here. It says when the battalion showed up, these soldiers, showed, it says that Jesus stepped forward. Jesus stepped forward to meet them. I love that because it doesn't say that Jesus saw them, realized his time had come, and ducked behind a tree. That Jesus went and uh, tried to hide as best they could until they found him. So that Jesus stepped up to meet them. You know what that tells me? It tells me that Jesus was, 
I don't think he was eager to experience the pain and the torture of crucifixion. I think Jesus was eager to get this salvation job done for you and me. I think Jesus stepped forward because he knew what was ahead of him, but he wasn't going to allow them to capture him. Jesus was going to give himself over. I love that because the messaging behind that is so true that when Jesus literally gave his life, Jesus didn't get murdered. He didn't get trapped. Jesus literally gave his life for you and me. I love this. It says that says they asked, or Jesus asked them, whom are you looking for? In verse 5 it says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I, I just read, sometimes you know you read your Bible over and over again and then you're surprised by something. This literally surprised me. I have not, I, I read this a hundred times, I'm sure. But like this next verse or two, I, I had never noticed this before. Listen to what it says. Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus says, Jesus said. Judas was standing there with them when they finished, uh, when Jesus identified himself. Listen to this, verse 6. And as he said this, I am he, they fell backward to the ground. Listen, by the way, in the Greek, it literally says, they lurched backwards and then fell to the ground. Jesus says, I am he. Literally quoting, in fact, the Greek actually doesn't say I am he. It literally says, I am. Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament when Moses said, to Pharaoh, who is it that I should tell them is talking? And what did, what did Jesus, God say to Moses? Tell them, I am. In other words, God, Elohim, Master, Lord, he was referred to in heaven as the great I am. Jesus says to these guys, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. Here's what Jesus says, I am. It says they lurched backwards and then fell to the ground. You just get the scene, right? All these, these pompous strong, sword, shield-bearing, helmet-wearing guys comes up, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Who is it? I am. And then they're like, you, all you hear is clattering and clanging and everyone falling to the ground. I can just see one getting up in his helmet sideways. And he's like, what just happened? What just happened? I always think we read my Bible like every now and then God just has to throw in something that's funny. But, but here's, the, here's the crazy thing. Do you realize that in the presence of God, no man can stand? In just a moment, right there, Jesus says, I am. And they fell. They, they weren't like religious people. They were there to arrest him. Just in the presence of God, the Bible says, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. At the very name of Jesus, he says, I am. And at that moment, they all fell. I love that because there's this indicator that, listen, I'm about to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm about to lay my life down for all of you. You're not taking my life. I, you realize that there was required a perfect, sinless sacrifice for you and I to have our sins washed away. Literally, that's what Jesus did. He was the perfect, sinless sacrifice. He stood up and said, I give you all of me. Says I am, and they all fall to the ground. I love that. I just wonder what they thought when they got up. What would they think? Would they think like, uh, what just happened? We're in the midst of something special, or did they even did they even acknowledge it? I don't know. Jesus says again, "Who are you searching for?" And again, they replied, "Jesus of Nazareth." Over in Mark chapter fourteen, it says, "Meanwhile, after this arrest happens, meanwhile all the all the disciples deserted him and ran away." Imagine this in this olive grove. It's dark, there are lanterns burning, there are swords clanging, there are shields 
somehow held up. Jesus says, I am he. They finally stand back up to their feet. And all the disciples disperse. All those ones who stood there and said, I'll follow you, Jesus. The ones who sat at the Last Supper and said, not I. I won't deny you. When Jesus said, one of you here will deny knowing me. Not me. I'm with you. And it just begins to reveal the human spirit, right? We are weak. We're on our own strength. We can't stand up. We We can't stand in the midst of that kind of pressure. They ran. They dipped. They took off. They ran from the guards. Jesus ran to the guards. Hmm. I wonder what went through the minds of these disciples at that moment. One minute, they're at the top of their game. One minute, they're standing with the one who said, I am the king, I am the master, I am the Messiah. At one minute, they're, they're hitting every ball that's thrown their direction. One minute, it looks like they've scaled the highest mountain and they won. And they're staking claim on their land saying, we are part of this new kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about. At one minute, it's all going right. (laughs) At one minute, it seems like the, the next step then is to just crown him the king, give him the throne, and we all just live happily ever after. In their minds, they were one step away from that happening. What must it have been like when they saw their their leader, their master, the one who, who, who raised dead people and healed blind people and fed hungry people. What must it have been like at that moment when it all just, it all just stopped? What did, went through their minds? What did what they think to themselves? Oh my gosh, what, what now? What do we do? I thought he said, how come? What, what, what? Has it ever happened to you? Has ever happened to you in your life when everything you think is supposed to go the right way, you know that perfect family you envisioned? You know the top of the wedding cake with that handsome groom and the pretty bride and all the things that are supposed to go well and the white picket fence and the 2.3 children and all that happens when the perfect picture of your family doesn't show up the way you thought it would? When that investment portfolio that you've established starts to... Uh, Well, pull stuff away instead of bring stuff in. When the health of your child seems to wane and all that you thought was going to be a promise for their future has fallen away, what goes through your mind when it feels like everything that should be going in the right direction the way that it started has fallen apart? I can tell you what happens in both circumstances, both to the disciples and to you and I. You know what happens? Your hope begins to leave you Hopelessness sets in. The ability to, to, to breathe all by yourself without having that little, the little hitch in your lung as you're taking in a, 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 a lung full of air. And it just kind of catches you that moment when hopelessness steps in and says, no, 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 you're not taking this breath easily. Worry, and fear, and anxiety all starts to make its home in your life. When hopelessness comes in, your peace seems to leave. It's interesting, this today we celebrate Easter Sunday, that day when the tomb was empty. But I always think to myself, what, 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 what must it have been like? This morning I got up and a couple of us went over to, uh, across the street here, there's a hill, we call it Prayer Hill, and, and there's a little road that goes up to it. You can see over the top of the, the church, you can, you can see all of Tacoma all around, it's really beautiful. We were up there praying, it was dark, and I remember thinking like, man, you know, the Bible says that when 
When it was dark, the next day, Mary and her friends went to the tomb. What must it have been like that morning? How much sleep did they get? I wonder what it was like. Their savior, their master, their leader, their king is, is no longer living. He was brutally beaten. Man, they saw him get flogged. They saw him get nailed to a cross. They saw him breathe his last. What must it have been like that next morning? Did they, did, did they get any sleep? I don't know if there's a more hopeless day in our history than Saturday after the crucifixion. I can't imagine a more hopeless day that, uh, that lived on planet Earth when, when, when people, at least a smattering of people, hoped that they would experience this Messiah, this King. And on that Saturday morning, what must it have felt like for them to wake up and know that he was, he was dead? In their mind's eye, all they knew was what they thought and hoped for was alive, was now gone. What happened in their minds? Did they get more depressed? Did they get anxious? I call it a Saturday mindset. Maybe that's happened for you. Have you ever had a Saturday mindset? When everything you thought was so great begins to get terribly wrong, all the things that you thought were right begin to blow up under your feet. I just wonder, how long can you continue to live with the Saturday mindset? I read an article the other day. It said, how long, how long, uh, how much shorter does your life have to get before you finally will change your direction in life? How how bad can your life get? How short does it have to be when you're living a a Saturday mindset and things aren't going well? How short does it get before you finally say, I'm changing? See, because when you live in a Saturday mindset for 30, 40, 50 years, at some point, I just wonder, how short would it have to be before you actually change something? 70 years? 70 minutes? I don't know. How long do you have to live in Saturday hopelessness before you finally realize, I can't continue to live this way? See, i got to believe in a room this size that there are people here today who are living in a Saturday mindset. They're married to that person they thought was going to change it all. They, they, they switched that job to this one in hopes that this would change it all. They had that baby. They had that scenario. They bought that house. They did that move. They did that career change. All the things went on, thinking at some point it would work out and let all the cards just fell down. And you're saying to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to make it past this moment. Now, here's the crazy thing. So many of us live with a Saturday mindset on the inside. And on the outside, oh, it's Sunday. Because we're showing the happies of Sunday, man. Woohoo! But on the inside, on the inside, there's brokenness and hurt and pain. I think if that's one thing I, re- I realize as a pastor that I see more and more is more and more people who are super good at acting. We're super good at acting and, and making sure that everyone seems to see our smiles on the outside, but not the pain on the inside. I think our Saturday mindset, and, and by the way, to, to me, the Saturday mindset's like trying to take a beach ball and hold it under a water, right? You, you can hold a beach ball under water for a while, <laughs> After a while, you start, you know, your arms get a little tired. You start putting your leg up on it. You try to do everything you can to hold that beach ball down. But eventually that bugger just pops up out of the water, doesn't it? Saturday mindset, that's what happens to us. See, when you try to live in a Saturday mindset too long by trying to manipulate or convince or hope that, that you can just find some hope when you're on the inside desperately broken and hurting, you know what happens. It's when we make our biggest mistakes, 
When you try to hide your Saturday mindset by a smile on the outside, we make our biggest mistakes. It's right then that that, that, that third glass of wine makes really good sense. It's right then that that linger just a little too long on that inappropriate thing on TV. It's right about then in that Saturday mindset when we feel like we just need a little reprieve that the idea of sending a text message to that person from high school that you used to date starts to make sense. It starts to just make, it starts to feel like it's right. When we're living in a Saturday mindset, we're looking for some minute, some moment, some minute second of just an element of, I just want to feel better. There's nothing worse than living life in Saturday mindset on the inside and trying to fake it on the outside. It's exhausting. It's debilitating. Buckles your knees. John chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from its entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple, John in this case, ran to the tomb. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up lying by its side. The other disciple also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't realized that the scripture said that he would raise from the dead. And then they went home. I want to remind you that every, every word in the Bible is breathed of God. The Bible says all, all scriptures God breathed. Even those, even those parts that seem kind of funny, you know, where it says here that, uh, that the other disciple outran Peter to the tomb. You know, and we kind of chuckle as pastors and kind of go like, ah, you know, Peter was slow and then John was fast. You know, until, until it dawned on me, the reason why it was important for the writer of this particular gospel to include the fact that John beat Peter to the tomb, like what's the significance of that? Except for the fact that on a, the human mind living in a Saturday mindset that feels like so hopeless inside. Let me tell you what happens when you're hopeless. Your run is a little slower than it used to be. Your, your, your sprint turns into a jog, your jog into a walk, and sometimes you're walking to a crawl. Why did John beat Peter to the tomb? Perhaps he was younger and more healthy and could have got there. But I just want to venture a guess that maybe the reason he beat him there was because Peter was so filled with grief, so filled with loss, maybe even depressed about the fact that he had just denied knowing Jesus three times. I don't know. All I know is that there was a moment when you live in a Saturday mindset, it slows your gait. Let me tell you this, it slows things down. Maybe that's what's happened in your life. You've been, you've been living your life in a Saturday mindset, trying to make it through, and you find yourself not being able to get up to speed the way you thought you used to, not having the peace that you used to live in, not living with the joy that used to get you up from bed. Hmm. So how do you get this hope restored? How do you get this hope restored? We could, just, we could just take the Bible and rub it all over our bodies and somehow hope would just be restored. We could do that, right? I, I don't know if it's possible. How do you get hope restored? 
I want to tell you three things that, 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 that happened in this particular passage that leads me to believe how hope was restored. Because when we read further on after this book of John into the, the, the next chapters of the book of Acts and Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians into the later chapters, we find these same people whose lives' trajectory was so changed that literally they were not only filled with hope, they began to live in hope. So how did they go from Saturday, the hopelessness of Saturday, to to live in a life in Sunday, and their hope was restored. Listen to this. It says in John chapter 20, first of all, how do you get hope restored? Number one, you get hope restored, first of all, while it's still dark out. While it's still dark out. Listen to what it says in John 20, verse 1. It says, early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. It's interesting because most of the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all include the fact that Mary didn't go there alone. They, they, she went there with a group of women. I love the fact that it was women and not men for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the reason, here's an interesting fact. Back in the first century, the Bible says, or not even for the Bible, but other writers in the first century, uh, they, their value of women was so bad. and they, they viewed women as property. and They didn't even view women as credible sources to be able to tell something that was of uh, truth. Uh, in other words, Literally, they would only people would only believe something is true on the witness of two men. If there were two women, it wasn't a credible source. I always wonder why, you know, when you read your Bible and you, you see things. Listen, if this was a farce, if this was a joke, if this was something that people made up, can I tell you this? The first thing they wouldn't write is that two women showed up and gave credibility to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. They would say two men did it. Uh, that's why I love to me, it shows just again another layer of the truth and the honesty with which the scriptures were written. The two women went there to the tomb. Why were they going to the tomb? It says early in the morning while it was still dark. It was just after the Sabbath on the Saturday. And the, remember the Sabbath, if you've known anybody who is Jewish or practiced any, any of the Jewish religion at all, in fact, in Israel, during the Sabbath, nothing's open. I mean, it's like it used to be on Sundays here. Right? I mean, literally, it's shut down. You can't, you're not supposed to work, eat. You're not supposed to do anything you can eat. But you can't make food. You have to eat the food that was made the other night. Literally, there's no working at all on that Sabbath. So early the next morning was the first opportunity they had to go and prepare Jesus' body at this point for burial. Right? Now, remember, this is in the Middle East. This is in the first century. And back then, today, we put people in a casket and then stick them in the ground and bury them under six feet of dirt. Back then, what they would do is they would put people in a tomb this sounds kind of crazy. They would put them in a tomb until their bodies decayed and just their bones were there. Then the bones they would take and put them into a little box about this size and put the bones into what was called the family ossuary or the family crypt or whatever it is, right? So, so they would put the bones in a tomb for a period of time. It was so dry and hot and arid there that the bones would eventually dry out and they would put them into a... Th- That's what Jesus' tomb was. Literally, it was a place that people... No one had ever been in this particular tomb belonged to a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was put in there, and they had, so, so they were going there to prepare his body. Why? Because dead people stinketh, right? They were putting spices and all that stuff, right? It just so happens that they were coming to put perfume and do all this stuff on him for the, for the days that he would be there in the tomb. Uh, it's amazing, right? I think to me it's funny because it says that they went there while it was still dark. While it was still dark, they went to the tomb. You know, I don't know if anybody would have known. He was already in the tomb. I don't know if anybody would have known if they had prepared his body right or well or not. 
But they went there while it was still dark, when no one could see them, no one could see at all. They went there while it was darkest. The darkest part of the day, they go to the tomb. You know what they did? They did what they were supposed to do. Mary, Mary, whatever the Martha, all the people who were there at that moment, they ended up going to the tomb. They did what they were supposed to do. The next right thing for them was to go and to take these spices and perfumes and put them on the body of the corpse, what they thought was Jesus. Nobody would have known. Earlier, the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea had actually put 70 pounds of ointment on Jesus' body and prepared him as well. For the women to go do that was just another additional thing. The thing that amazes me was that these women's hope was restored because they, they, they did what they were supposed to do. They went there when no one else was looking when it was the darkest part of the day. How, how do you get hope restored in your life? I believe hope gets restored when you do what you're supposed to do and no one else is looking. Uh, to me, I, I just see this picture. When no one else knows at 4.30, when you're waking up and you're spending time with Jesus, when no one else knows that you've opened your Bible and you sat down and read it and shut it and went to work, no one on the planet knows that you've done that about you and Jesus. You did what was the right thing to do. No one knows when you stopped and gave that person that $20 that you had in your pocket. No one knows that you had that moment when, when you could have taken the, 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 the low road, but you chose to take the high road and you didn't whatever it was that you should have done. You decide to take the high road. You decide to do the right things. Let me tell you this. When no one else is looking, it's usually the darkest night and the hardest time. You want to see hope restored? You watch, you watch when you're doing things and no one else is looking. I can tell you that the, the, the part of my life that has grown the most has been when no one else is seeing me. Sometimes people think that the, the, the preacher's life all shows up here on a platform when I'm doing all the talking. Let me tell you this, there's been years worth of dark, quiet nights that no one knows about that brought me to this place today. And you have those two, those moments when you feel like you're, you're getting punched in the jaw, when you feel like you should have gotten the yes, but you got the no. And the darkest night feels like you're all alone and no one knows. Let me tell you this, in the darkest night of their life, you know where they went? They went to Jesus. In the darkest part of their day, in the hardest part of their life, they went to Jesus. In the most despair, in the difficulty of their Saturday mindset, the first thing they did was the right thing. They went to Jesus. I just want to tell you this. If you want hope restored in the darkest part of your night, go to Jesus. The darkest part of your day, when you feel like you just want to throw your fist up, or you want to just make a declaration that you're right and everyone else is wrong. If you want to see your hope restored, your justification before men will never satisfy. Your justification before God will. You come before him and say, God, I know, I know I'm, I'm right, but God, it doesn't matter if I'm right before man. I want to be right before you. Hope gets restored in the darkest part of your day when you go to Jesus first. Number two. Number two. How will hope get restored? When the stone is finally rolled away. It says in John chapter 20, verse 1, Easter Sunday morning, while it was still dark, early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. It's interesting. I've been to uh, what they believe is the tomb of Jesus in Israel. And it's the, the, the stone. I mean, I'm six foot three something, and, and the stone would have been bigger than me. You know, it would have been around a foot thick. It could have been over uh, two tons. I mean, huge, right? And so they would roll this stone. It would take a couple of guys to roll this stone 
and they would lock it in place to put in a, some rock or something under it. And then they would put the body in there. And once the body, they would move the rock and it would roll back over and sit in its place. So it's kind of a little bit of a slant, but it would sit there. And the only way to open the tomb up again was to get a couple more guys to do it. It's interesting because some of the other writers of the gospel say that these women were on their way to the tomb wondering how they were going to open the stone, move the stone over. They didn't know that uh, the Pharisees had had the Roman guards placed there to guard the tomb. They thought they were going to go and find that this stone was going to be there, and they were trying to figure out how in the world they were going to roll, roll it away. They went, there, they went there not knowing how they were going to get in. If you want hope restored to me, in my, when I read this passage of Scripture, I can tell you that there are people here today who, has, who have big stones that are blocking you in your life, big stones that need to be removed from places in your life that you feel is insurmountable. You don't think you'll get past that addiction. You don't think you'll ever be able to forgive. You don't feel like you're ever going to make it past this, this fear that seems to grip you and buckle your knees. And you're wondering, I don't know how I'm going to make it into this next step. There's a big fat rock in front of you, and you're wondering, like these women, I don't know who's going to help me move this thing. I love it when they got there, the stone was rolled away. Now, how'd that happen? Did it happen because they had wished it? That they, it's interesting. When they got there, literally, the Bible says that, and it all depends on which gospel you're reading as to the timing of this, but it says they encountered a massive earthquake that happened, right? There's a couple times in the Bible, first at Jesus' death on the cross, an earthquake happened, and then it says again at the resurrection when he was there, an earthquake had happened. Now, the earthquake wasn't the thing that rolled the stone away. The Bible says, and I think it was in Matthew, it says when an earthquake happened, when an angel came down and hit earth, he smacked earth and the whole earth shook. Here's what I love about this passage. There are so many of us who have big insurmountable obstacles in our way. Maybe it's that thing that doctor told you that you have that you feel like you, you can't get rid of, that cancer, whatever it is that they said that you're stuck with this thing. And it feels like there's a rock that you need to have removed from your life. Listen, there's only one thing that can remove that rock, and it's going to be God. It's in some supernatural moment where God shows up. And whether the stone is removed or, or, or God removes you from that scenario or that situation, the truth is the only way that happens is when we humble ourselves enough to say, God, I can't do it alone. I, I love the message of Easter because it's really a message of uh, no, one, no one in here gets the glory. Nobody, no human gets the glory for the tomb being empty. I love the fact that the only answer here is that somebody walked in humility enough to say, God, these women showed up. These women showed up and said, we don't know how we're going to remove this stone. See, maybe you're here today and you feel like you don't know how you're going to remove that stone from your life. That trial, that, that significant issue. You know how that's going to happen. And you've tried everything. You try to see if you can afford it. You try to get the right people, the smart people around you to make that thing move. And you just can't come up with it. Let me tell you, my friend, the only way that thing is going to move is when you finally come and your knees are bent before God in humility. And you say, God, I can't. I just need you to step in and do that. How will hope be restored? It's going to be restored in the darkest part of your night when the stone gets moved. And number three, how will hope be restored? It gets restored because the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Uh, let me tell you this, and, and whether you agree with me or not, it's the truth, I promise you. There is no more significant, listen to this, there is no more significant historical event on the planet has ever happened except for the resurrection of Jesus. 
Can I tell you that the teachings of Jesus were not more important than the resurrection? The death on the cross was not more and more important. The, 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 the healings, the raising from the dead, the feeding of thousands, none of those things were most important. The virgin birth, as much and miraculous as that was, the most important, single most important event in all of human history was the empty tomb. It was the empty tomb. It literally meant that Jesus did what he set out to accomplish. Him dying on the cross was literally shedding his blood on our behalf. And the beautiful thing in this whole process was as he shed his blood and rose from the dead, he rose from the dead to prove that his shedding of the blood was true. No one's ever risen themselves from the dead but Jesus. Here's what this tells me, is that your despair can be, can be eradicated by trusting in Jesus' hope. Some of you are experiencing the darkest nights of your life. Some of you are encountering stones that are insurmountable to move. Some of you, like Peter, are just a little afraid to get to the tomb to look and make sure he's still gone. I don't know where you are today, but you find yourself here today needing hope. Man, if you breathe and blink, you need hope. Every one of us qualifies for this message of Easter. Every one of us is in desperate need of this message of hope. And let me tell you this, if you don't have that message of hope, then you walk out of here with that same level of, I'll just keep on trying harder. I'll just keep on trying to push the rock. I'll just keep on trying to get up in the middle of the night when when I feel hopeless. I just tell you this, if you need hope, it's really all about surrender. If you need hope today, it's about you saying, Jesus, I can't do it myself, but you can and I need you. Hope is found when we surrender our lives to Jesus. I didn't say hope is found when we become religious or when we start attending church. Hope isn't found when you do those things. Those are byproducts of our ability to say, God, I need you. Hope is found when we finally say, okay, 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 I give. You got me, God. I give up. And if you leave here today without that hope in your heart, my heart breaks for you. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I'm better than she is. I'm I'm way nicer than he is. I've done better things than they've done. Is that your answer? Or will your answer be, God, you should let me into your heaven because I've surrendered my life completely to Jesus. And I have the hope of salvation in my heart. There's no other answer that'll get you into heaven than that. So I want to pray for you today. I'm going to invite you into a relationship with, with Jesus. I'm going to pray and ask that, that if that's the first time today that you've surrendered your life to Christ, that, that you would boldly say, this is my day where I finally find hope. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've kind of walked away and you're realizing, I need to get back in line. If that's you this morning, then we're going to pray that God begins to bring a restoration in your heart. You don't need to get resaved. You just need to realign your heart with God. So will you join me this morning as, as we pray? Lord, this morning we come desperately in need of you. God, everything inside our hearts. 
wants to solve our own problems. The two-year-old inside of us that says, me, mine, my way, the Lord just always seems to come to fight back when it comes to a moment of surrendering our lives to anything. Because we think we can do it all by ourselves. This morning in this room, or maybe watching us online, you found yourself saying, man, pastor, I need this Jesus relationship that you're talking about. I want to make sure that if I died today that I would go to heaven, that I wouldn't have any fear of not having the right answer. I want to make sure today that if I were to die that I could get access into heaven. If that's you this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, this is just between you and him. Will you just lift your hand up quietly and say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today? Just lift your hand up. I want to see who you are so I can pray with you. Today, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I've never done it before, but today I want to. If that's you, will you lift your hand up so we can pray with you? Maybe it's been a long time. And you know that you've walked with God, but you haven't been walking with him lately. Today's that moment when you're like, man, I, I got to get out of the Saturday mindset. And I got to start living a Sunday lifestyle that's an empty tomb, freedom from my shame. If that's you, and you know Jesus, but you want to rededicate your life, will you lift your hand up high and just say, I want to rededicate my life to following Jesus. Hallelujah. What a bunch of you. You can put your hands down. Jesus, I pray for your men and your, your, your sons and daughters, these men and women, these kids, Lord, who've raised their hand. Can I just get everyone in the room to just pray this with me? Say, Lord Jesus. I'll say it like you mean it. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I recognize today that I need the hope that only you give all over again. I rededicate my life to following you today. I give my life again completely to you. Take away all my sin, all of my dumb decisions. Fill me with your joy, the joy of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.